it's super important to realize that how you reach your objective matters. It's not the end justifies the means. It's not a state function where it doesn't really matter how you get there. It matters. And, and, and you cannot allow the, the amazing jerks to exist in an organization. They're cancers that will ultimately kill. Now, you might be able to put up with it for a short, short period of time, but I would even argue that's not even a great way to go. Remember Enron, the company that went to the highest highs only to have a dizzying fall in 2007. One of the values that Enron had put on the wall was integrity. In hindsight, no one would associate Enron with anything remotely close to integrity. As you heard in the intro, how you reach your objective matters. The end doesn't justify the means. And you have to be intentional about doing it the right way when it comes to people and values. As it turns out, putting values on the wall means nothing. I'm Irina Jambazova, and this week on the SaaS Revolution Show, I bring you a session from our recent SaaS Talk West Coast conference, where a stellar panel discusses how to nail company culture and mission, and how to build an environment fit for scale. What this means is creating a sustainable company with healthy culture, good demeanor, and authentic behaviors exuded by everyone. The panel is moderated by Sol Nvanze, Director of Business Operations Zendesk, and it features Sonia Gittens Otley, Head of Diversity and Inclusion in Asana, Emma Eshvel, VP Silicon Valley Bank, Stephen Shapiro, VP Marketing of CleverTap, and BJ Lackland, CEO of Lighter Capital. They talk in detail how to prepare for a more dynamic workplace and build a more productive and engaged workforce and touch on important topics such as hiring, culture ad rather than culture fit, how to run a company and why you should act as a parent to your team. As we're just days away from our flagship conference in Dublin, we want to make sure you think about these softer topics as much as you do about product market fit or go-to-market strategy or outbound sales strategy. Culture, inclusivity and equality matter far more than you think. And if you don't spend time on them, you could find yourself in Enron's shoes with empty words hanging off your walls. If you still haven't, you can grab a last-minute ticket for SaaS Talk 19, where 230 speakers will bring useful and thought-provoking content across seven stages. Head to sastalk.com forward slash sastalk19 to get your ticket now. Now, on with the show. Thank you all for giving us your time this afternoon. We are here to talk to you about culture and how it relates to employee experience. And just as Dan mentioned, culture is really critical in how people experience your company. And it's also something that connects people to how they pro, uh, how, what the productivity looks like in that company as well. Um, my name is Solu Wanzi and I work for Zendesk. And I'd like the panel to do a quick introduction, a brief introduction, just about one minute, about uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and then also what your philosophy is on culture. Um, my name is BJ Lackland and I'm the CEO of Lighter Capital. We provide uh, startups, primarily pre-Series A startups, with uh, little amounts of debt capital, lines of credit, term loans, things like that, 
Um, huge focus on SaaS companies, which is one of the reasons, obviously, why we're here. And um, so we'll provide up to about $3 million in funding for companies like probably a lot of the ones that are, that are here at the show. Um, in terms of diversity and in terms of uh, mission and vision and stuff like that, our, our uh, vision for the future is that our, and our mission is to revolutionize startup finance. We really see startup finance being something that's very much in the past for all kinds of reasons, frankly, somewhat related to diversity. And so we see our goal is really to sort of disrupt that and bring that into a more modern era. I'm Sandra Gittens-Ortley. I'm the Head of Diversity and Inclusion at Asana, which is a work management tool or platform that allows teams to really collaborate effectively. Um, I've been there for three years, um, building out diversity and inclusion, uh, and really ensuring that our strategies both reflect the, the diversity that we want to see, but also have a, has um, or creates a culture that's really inclusive. In terms of our philosophy around culture, we really think about it as interconnected. So think of it as every company has a mission and business goals that they want to succeed at. Uh, then you have your values, which is essentially the North Star in terms of how you envision working together. And then you have your programs, your policies, your guidelines, the norms in the company, which drives, which support the values and allow you to, to succeed in that mission. All of that together, and if done properly, contributes and builds a culture. And at Asana, we've essentially approached culture in the same way that we think about our product in a really intentional and strategic way, which I'm happy to talk about more. Um, but that's how we think about our culture at Asana. Hello, everybody. My name is Steven Shapiro, uh, and I am the VP for Marketing of Americas for CleverTap. And CleverTap is an engagement platform that helps customer or companies that have uh, mobile applications convert and grow and, and keep their users. Uh, so for us, CleverTap and, and in my history, culture is a very critical aspect of building an organization. It, it's what keeps people around. It's what makes people desire to come in every day because, let's all be honest, we spend more time in the business than we do with our spouses and our family, unfortunately, but that's the case. Uh, and, and what keeps us going is really being in an environment that we believe in and that we love. And, and so for us, it's about making sure that uh, the fundamental tenets of that value proposition are very well understood and, and supported and, and actually driven from within. So we'll talk a, little more, a lot more about that. Great. Hi, my name is Emma Eschweiler. I'm a vice president at Silicon Valley Bank, and I run a software portfolio in NorCal. So companies that have raised a Series A up to about $100 million in annual revenue. Some of my clients, I think, are here today. Um, and I'm a little bit different than the other folks on this panel. I'm more of a boots-on-the-ground approach to culture, meaning what we do at SVB impacts directly what our clients experience from a culture. And I think that it's so important to remember that you can't skip culture. It bleeds out into everything else. Um, and one thing that I feel really proud about at SVB is we're such a values-driven organization. It allows us to be very present in market with that same sense of purpose. So a big part of how I spend my time isn't just improving the probability of my client's success through mechanisms like venture debt, uh, through credit card programs, through general banking services, but also through connecting people in a smart and good way. I think um, one thing that I spent a lot of time on is uh, improving the proportion of women funded at the Series A. We've looked at the numbers and it's awful. I think the public statistics out there are pretty clear. Um, but what we've measured at SVB is that there really is a drop off once you get serious venture backed funding. So the fact that 
as a boots on the ground approach to changing the overall ecosystem culture, we have that support from uh, sort of our values at the top. So again, my big message is that you can't skip culture. It bleeds into everything. Um, and especially from my vantage, seeing not just our own company, uh, just over 3,000 people globally, looking at companies that start with you know three people in a garage, you can really focus on it early and nip all the wrong things in, a butt, in the bud. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about those things with all of you. So I want to uh, share a couple of things. Please go to Slido and ask any questions, and we'll try to weave that into the conversation today. Um, and a quick intro for myself, I work at Zendesk, and Zendesk is a customer experience platform company. We have a great program with startups, and you can uh, check us out at the booth to get uh, some information on that. I think we offer one-year free access for startups, so make sure you check that out as well. Um, I'm curious, uh, Sanja, to go a little bit deeper into your approach on how you uh, approach culture like you're building a product. And talk a little bit about what that looks like um, for your company. Sure. Um, the first thing that we thought about was, well, what are the values that we want to have as a company? Um, and we oftentimes it's a lot easier to start your company and start going, and then you start to think, well, what do we want to be? Um, we started slightly differently. We were really intentional about what were the values we were trying to have. And the other thing to be aware of is that we also recognized that as you grow, as things change, the values that you had when you were a particular size might not be they evolve with you. So we actually just did a refresh of our values. Um, so we thought about those values. And part of it is our leadership had a really clear picture of the kind of company we wanted to be. So we thought about the values in that context. The other part about thinking about those values is that we were also really clear that we didn't just want them to be abstract concepts that just sounded nice and pithy and didn't actually mean anything. So that's the other way we thought about values. And the third part of that is really ensuring that the company understood why these values mattered to us and were bought into it, either as champions themselves or in helping to co-create it. Because we really see everyone as being stewards of those values. Um, so, so as one example, one of our values is mindfulness. Um, it's how we think about the product as well. The product allows you to be really mindful and transparent about the work that you're doing so everyone knows what everyone else is doing. But for us as a company, in terms of, of how we envision ourselves working together, actually on Wednesdays, we have no meeting Wednesdays. Um, and part of it, part of that reason is we want everyone to take time to sit and do that thoughtful work, that analytical work, spend time thinking. Um, so it's we do have meetings, but they're they are not the norm. Um, and it, it was a way for us to think about how are we living the value that we have. Another example is we have a roadmap week, um, during our, which is our planning time every six months, where we essentially stop work um, or, or big work, and we sit and we plan the work that we're going to be doing for the next six months, and we essentially do road mapping. Um, and again, it's, it's kind of thinking about those values in a lived way. The other part of that is thinking about, well, what are the policies and the programs that we are putting in place to support the values that we have? So as you've said, um, one of the things that we're really clear on is building a, a workplace where everyone can thrive, and thinking about thriving in the sense of when you feel empowered um, and you feel as though you can see, succeed here, you you can actually do your best work and contribute 
to the company. So how are we thinking about policies that create that inclusive environment? How are we thinking and setting up policies and guidelines that live those values? So that's how we've thought about it. And again, they all support the mission and the business goals that we have for ourselves as a company. And, and BJ, you talked a little bit um, when we were chatting, you, you mentioned this sort of the change, how you adjust the values of the company from when you're, say, 10 people to 50, 100. What does that look like for your company? Yeah, we set, um, we set up some values. I mean, number one, I guess I'd start with the very, very beginning, which is um, a culture at a company is something that you know, starts to breed as soon as you basically you know, file your incorporation papers. I mean, you are a person, you, if you're beginning the company, and you have a certain set of values and way you act, and as soon as you start hiring somebody, that person's gonna start mimicking that. And so one of the ways I like to think about it is that you know, a culture is something that grows, right? If you're backing it out of like the actual corporate context of just a culture of a bunch of germs and things like that. And so if you want to be really intentional about it, you can go and take that culture and make cheese. If not, it's just going to become mold, right? And so just being intentional from day one. So we were, we were pretty intentional from day one that we you want to exhibit certain good behavior and things like that, right? But you don't typically tend to be like, okay, I filed my incorporation papers on Tuesday, and on Wednesday I've got my list of values. Like, you just don't do that, right? You wait for the loss. So and we were about 15 people. We were like, okay, okay, okay. We should start to actually be more overtly intentional about it as opposed to just sort of it being a topic that we talked about pretty consciously. And we set out some values and things like that. But then, yeah, when we got up to about 40 people, we really had to revisit them, much like you're saying. Um, and they've been pretty, pretty consistent ever since. But we could run a process at that point in time that was a little less top down, a little more like we'd gone through and done some kind of surveys and discussions with employees and actually had an outside group come in and talk to some of the different employees and things like that. So we got a bit of feedback um, to then go form the values. Yeah. Um, I think one of the most important things, kind of hearkening to what you're saying, um, is how do you take those values, right? You can write those values and take them and write them on the wall. And as is commonly joked, you know, Enron had integrity as one of their values written on the wall, like right at the corp corporate headquarters. And obviously that didn't work too well. Um, so how do you actually take those values and incorporate them um, into actually like daily practice or something that the employees are going to interact with in a very meaningful way? And I think one of the favorite things that, that we did uh, or my favorite things is we have a certain way that we set up to interview new employees, right? Because we're going to have values. Obviously, having them be involved in the gate where you bring in new employees is a pretty important thing because then you're ideally then bringing in people that are sort of values appropriate. Um, but one of the things we, we set out to do very intentionally was have uh, people that are on an interview loop, everybody gets assigned a value to then interview for. And there are a whole bunch of like example questions that you can use to kind of, you know, test for that value. And we very intentionally set that up in a way that not only is that good for bringing in people that share those values, but it also is a really good way of reinforcing to your internal people that are already employees, these are really important to us and these are things to think about. And so it's both a sort of you know, new employee facing thing as well as an internal uh, existing employee facing thing, but just sort of a little bit of a, not trick, but a good sort of habit that um, is probably one of my favorite things that, that we do to incorporate those values. And speaking of hiring, because that's one of the things that you're going to be doing as you continue to grow, how do you identify, and I, there's, there's some talk about, you know, culture fit, values fit, culture add, values add. I'm going to throw it to Emma just to get a sense of what you think about those terminologies and how your company um, addresses it in the hiring process. Yeah, well, so you look at Silicon Valley Bank and half the employees have been at the institution for less than three years or or new, brand new, something like that. And we've been around for 35 plus years. So I guess backing up for a moment, back to what BJ was saying, you do have to be very intentional from the beginning because 
you're going to grow a lot faster than you think in a good way, but also that means you've missed opportunities to build the culture from the front end. So I'll start there. But I actually, controversial opinion, don't think that culture fit is really the right terminology. Um, I think that it immediately introduces bias. So if you're thinking to yourself, okay, I want someone that will fit in on this team. Now you're bringing a bunch of like-minded people together instead of potentially people that might contribute to each other and be complementary to each other. Um, so I like the idea of uh, culture add. I would say value add maybe, back to BJ's point, it is important to have sort of a guidepost, sort of a north star of, okay, this is where we are today, this is who we are today, we'll revisit when we're at 40 employees, when we're at 100, when we're at 3,000 3, or more. Yeah. Um, but really I think it takes a lot of guts to look at yourself and not get defensive when you say, okay, I really like this guy, he's got everything right on paper, but maybe he's just a little too much like the rest of us. And, and Stephen, how do you drive authenticity through that process? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, and it's kind of funny because I always, I think about teams, and I've, I've led small teams and large teams, and I always find a lot of overlap as a parent to running a team. And actually, I kind of joke because I think the leadership, they're like little kids more <laughs> than they are adults. You, you know, you got to be careful with what you say and how you say it. it, it so so it's, I actually kind of find it kind of humorous. But um, in that overlap of, 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 of being a parent for your team, um, it's very important to have structure, right? If you let them run wild and you don't have any clear boundaries defined, they will do so. And then it's your own fault for letting them letting them get away with it, right? So you've you've gotta build your your values and, and, and then be consistently applying it and hold people accountable, yourself included. And I do that all the time where I go, you know what guys, my bad. You know, I'm, I'm, I did not do this in the way that I normally would have because I was stressed. It was, you know, urgent, whatever, and be open. And, and, but then you hold that same expectation with the team to say, that's not okay. And this is not how we operate. And I get why you did it. But at the same time, we have to be open and honest and transparent with ourselves to say that um, it, it's going to happen and we got to make sure we don't let it happen again. I think if you're, if you, drive that consistency and that structure, people love it. They go, nope, I get it. Yep, understand, I'm happy to, happy to support that. Yeah. Um, you know, we started talking a little bit about inclusivity and diversity. And as the company goes through the, the growth stages, you get more different people in the company. How do you check for inclusivity in the company culture? And how do you sort of drive that? And we can, whoever wants to answer that question. I was gonna say, I wanted to build off of something you said because it was so great. Um, part of it is when you're approaching it and being really honest and saying, my bad, um, when, you're, when you have policies and guidelines in place that are fair, that are transparent, where you treat everyone the same, including yourself, that's part of the thing that contributes to building that inclusive workplace. So if it is clear that everyone is going to face that same piece, um, it goes a long way in creating that sort of level playing field where everyone knows, you know what, um, we can have this conversation because there's no difference or differentiation that makes a big step. One of the things that, that we do um, is we have a five wise process um, when something happens in our product or e whether it's product or in our culture. Um, so we do it for exit interviews, for example. And part of it is really saying what happened. And it's less about, um, saying that this person is to blame or this person is to blame. It's 
talking about the process and what we did and how can we learn and improve from it. And part of that is sort of having a growth mindset around all of this and looking at how can we go through this process and do better as opposed to thinking about or accusing or blaming someone for it. The other part of that is really thinking through this is not something that comes naturally to a lot of people and particularly as your company grows and becomes more diverse. There, a lot of this is going to be new. So I highly encourage you to think about having trainings. And trainings aren't just um, having a training and people suddenly become magical, um, want to be at this. There's training and then there has to be discussion and continued learning around a lot of these areas. Something as foundational as bias training, which allows us to understand that we all have biases, um, is a great start. But the other part of it is to talk about training in terms of interviews and interview processes. So everyone starts from the same place. So that when we're doing values, when we're interviewing for values, everyone understands how to interview for this, how to grade people on this. And we all create that level playing field so that everyone is treated fairly. Yeah, I just I would add the, the, a couple things. One is it's super important to realize that how you reach your objective matters. It's not the end justifies the means. It's not a state function where it doesn't really matter how you get there. It matters, and 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 you cannot allow the the amazing jerks to exist in an organization. They're cancers that will ultimately. Now, you might be able to put up with it for a short, short period of time, but I would even argue that's not even a great way to go. Um, uh, the other thing that is super, super critical is that you, the, your job as a leader, and, and everybody in an organization is a leader in some respect, but your job as a leader is to make sure you're making the environment one that the person can succeed in. And, 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 and I don't care how busy you are and what other things you've got on your plate, when, especially when you have, you're a manager and you have direct reports, your number one job is, is to include them in the process of solving their problems and helping them do that. Um, and your door has to be open to be able to go do that. And, and what I have found is we get so busy and so fixated on the day-to-day -day tactics of what we've got to do, we forget that we're really, our job there is to help them get their jobs done so that we are, are more successful it's really not you know altruistic it's it's i'm doing it because i i can't be successful unless they're successful i love that you said that bj or sorry steven okay. we were talking about this, last night, this afternoon I'll, yeah. take, I'll take credit thanks <laughs> <laughs> but it's so important especially what you said about the impressive jerks or however you, you you phrased it the big takeaway when hiring i think especially when you have seed funding maybe you have 18 months of cash and you're thinking to yourself this is this money is bleeding. We aren't going to be profitable for several rounds. And I have an opportunity to hire somebody who's going to be very effective for the next six months, and I should just do that. Um, you're the master of your own companies. You'll make that decision. But I guarantee that if you practice patience in two different ways, that you'll be better set up. And we were talking about this earlier, Stephen. One of those pieces of patience, and you brought this up, was you might not hire the person who's perfectly qualified for the job, but you'll hire the person with the right attitude, with the right values, the right culture add, um, and the ability to learn quickly, and very quickly, right? Because again, you're in that 18-month cash crunch. Um, and then the second piece of patience is, all right, you need that very specific skill set. Can you wait three months? Can you wait six months? How long can you run the business in an efficient way so that you get the right person? Um, we all know that if you hire the wrong salesperson early on, you've lost a year, right? They'll build the wrong sales team around it. It's not just from a skills perspective, it's absolutely from a culture's perspective. Culture bleeds into product. I mean, you look at you know, 
Theranos, right? You know, there's no good culture there, and then all of a sudden, the product doesn't even work, right? Let's talk a little bit about one of the questions that's coming from the audience, and this is around the process to codify values for the first time um, as a 40-people company. What is your uh, specific tactical advice that folks in the audience can use tomorrow in doing that for themselves? Yeah, I guess I can I talked about this a little before. Um, so we went through and we wanted to kind of survey employees some um, on kind of what they thought we were and not and things like that, right? Um, and so we did that in a sort of covertish way um, by doing some different kinds of interviews of groups of employees a little bit and trying to get a feel for like, okay, what, what, what do they see as kind of where we are and where we're not and things. Um, and then it really became a, sort of a big leadership discussion on, okay, do we have a good sense of where we are and do we have a good sense of where we want to be? And we spent a ton of time thinking about okay, are you codifying values that you are or are you trying to be aspirational with them, right? Because if you're overly aspirational with it, you have a problem with authenticity. You're gonna go and say, here's a bunch of values and your employees are gonna be like, liars, you're liars. You know, like that's not who we are. Um, but at the same point in time, you want them to be aspirational because you want to be driving in some direction where you're better than you are today, right, in the future. And so getting that interesting mix is, um, and getting that balance right is really, really tough because you can fall kind of off into being inauthentic or just not really driving the positive change you want to drive one way or the other. And of course, as a leadership team, you know, you're kind of like the last ones to really know a lot of this stuff, right? I mean, one of my expressions is like, I'm CEO, that means I'm last to know about a lot of stuff. And you just sort of, if you walk around kind of expecting that's going to be the case a lot of times, it's a little bit of a healthier attitude on stuff because you then force yourself to be a little bit more humble and a little less uh, dictatorial on things like values and such because, you know, I think I have a good idea of like who we are, but Shit, maybe I don't, you know? Um, and, and if every employee is gonna really feel that kind of way, right, you want, you want it to be representative of that. And, and ultimately, and this is a little bit different, maybe lens to look at it, but ultimately you also want it to be your brand. Right? Because in a way, brand, we all think of brand and we should all be a bunch of marketing people up here talking about brand or something like that, right? But in a way, brand is nothing but the external showing of your values. Yeah, right? and I, I was just, I think I want to build on that real quick because I think that's a key aspect of, of defining who you are. It, it, uh, there has to be an alignment at the leadership level, first and foremost, of, of the brand or the messaging house. Because part of that is who are we? as an organization, what are we trying to do and what is our, what is our, what do we believe we want to be when we grow up? Um, and that then sets, okay, now how do we want to get there? And I see the senior leadership team as the primary drivers of, of dictating that and defining that. And then ultimately the rest of the organization starts to either buy in or not into it. And, and you got to be super, super careful that you don't create an organization of cognitive dissidents where, where people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then ultimately their, you know, passive aggressive behaviors are not, are not really in supportive of it. So uh, it's, it's a challenge, but if you don't have the Uber thought of, of that messaging and, and, and what you stand for, you're going to drive yourself nuts. And the, the thing I'd add on to that, as you think through that, is a useful exercise is really to think through what's the shadow side of this value? What's this shadow side of this aspiration? Um, how, would, how could it show up? Um, because it still ultimately has to be in support of that North Star and how we work together and the tone we want to have, but it also supports our mission and our business goals, right? So think about those things. It's a great exercise to do just to kind of figure out, well, 
Oh, so for example, one of our um, values is clarity and really having a sense of who's responsible for what. Um, but how could that show up in a negative way? Does it slow us down? Um, do we have a trade-off where this is concerned? So really think through that. It's a great exercise to do. And it really gets you really clear on what your value should actually be. Yeah, there's um, a couple things that are coming up that I think tie into this with respect to how do you deal with this in a remote and, and in remote offices. And uh, I think it's super, and I'd love to get uh, your guys' thoughts on this, super important that even if you have a team that is distributed globally, you bring everybody together once a year at a minimum to have intimate one-to-one -one conversations and be part of a process of getting to know each other and to talk about the values and 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 business and, and those types of things you, uh, 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 people don't have to sit next to each other on a daily basis to be effective but I do think that they have to get to get physically together or periodically in order and I know it's very hard as a startup when you have limited funding to 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 do this but I would argue that your gains are so significant it's worth the cost of doing it Absolutely, and use those credit card points. <laughs> um, but I couldn't agree more, and actually I think if, if it's common belief that remote teams don't work as well, I think that that's very, it's been proven false. Um, and I would say it's more and more common. If I look at my portfolio, especially the earlier stage companies that are joining my portfolio at the Series A stage, started global day one. Um, I do have a few growth companies in my portfolio, one of whom grew to 16 million in ARR this year, 100% uh, growth year over year, um, globally distributed team. And to the point where even in their office, if you're in a meeting and someone is also going to be in that meeting and is physically next to you, you don't take it in the same room. You go and you, just to really, really hone in on the notion of if we're all remote, that's part of our culture. We're remote with each other and we come together in very specific spaces for a very different reason. Um, that's an interesting extreme, but I've uh, so a big part of what I also spend time on is focusing on HR tech specifically as a subsector um, uh, that I that I focus on. And in talking with CHROs around in the valley, there is sort of this concept of you can either be 100% remote or you can be 100% local. And I think it's very clear if we're talking about hiring and hiring the right people, especially in this labor market and especially in this city. Um, you're going to be globally distributed. So thinking about how you do that now um, is a really smart thing to be doing. A lot of companies are doing it. So if you're concerned that it's less uh, productive or not as strong as having everybody in the same place, I would dissuade you of that belief. I don't think it's true. Um, I think we've seen some really successful companies do it well. I want to bridge a couple of things that um, Emma and Sivine, you mentioned. So in hiring um, and hiring distributed teams, you talked about making sure that you get a chance to meet in person at least once a year. What does your onboarding look like? So you're bringing a new person. They might be in a different location. They might be the only person in their location. How do you quickly bring that person into the fold so that the values and the mission and that culture that you've built in the company transcends? Yeah, I mean, I'll just answer specifically to the, the CleverTap and then the other organizations I've been in. It really does come down to having a very clear, defined process um, of, of uh, tactically, what do you do? So there's, you know, the process of getting them into the system, then then getting their email, and then, you know, when they get there, do they have any any swag that's available? So so what we do is we, we, we have that built out so that there is a specific set of tactical things that happen in a certain order 
that drives them to become aware of, of, of what we are and get them excited to become a new part of it. And we call ourselves at CleverTap citizens, C-T-Z-E-N-S, right? So we're citizens. And and we, we, we keep that mantra and we say, welcome new citizen. And everybody follows on with glad to have you. And, and there's a Slack channel where everybody introduces new people. And, you know, we're still a fairly small organization, 100-ish plus people. But it really, I don't expect this to change if we become 10,000 people. It's its about understanding that you're part of a family because you are part of a family and making sure that that, that it's clear that not only do we appreciate you being here, but, we, but we're cl clearly communicating again this, this, this culture and this um, set of expectations. And then and it has to be a, a, a very, very dictated process. Otherwise, it will be uh, chaotic and, and it'll be uh, inconsistent. And that's probably a big problem. So Sonja, tell me a little bit about what that onboarding process looks like for your company and how you scaled it as a company grew bigger. Sure. Um, so we are, our headquarters is in San Francisco, but we have uh, distributed offices in New York, Vancouver, Dublin, Tokyo, uh, Sydney, and Iceland. Um, so one of the things that we really thought about was to your point, ensuring that we have a consistent onboarding process. Um, for example, I do a session on diversity and inclusion and what it means for us at Asana for all new Asanas in San Francisco. And for me, it made sense to do a 6 a.m. call with our Dublin new hires to have that same conversation. Could that scale? Probably not. But um, what I've also done and what we also do as part of our onboarding process is that we have presenters in each location who have been trained in the same way um, to do that session for all of the things that, that are critical to us as a company. Um, the other thing that, that I'd recommend is what we also did was our people in those locations, and um, we have site leads and office managers in those locations who spend time in, our, in the San Francisco office understanding what that looked like and what that process looked like. We, we would do it with them um, so that they can, can not only have um, a consistent onboarding process, but recognize that sometimes there are things and conversations that are just as critical for onboarding new people in those locations that need to be tailored to those locations as well. So consistent in terms of the big things with the understanding that there, there's some room for flexibility. Um, a question that came up earlier was this question around benefits and how the company's culture and values influence those benefits. Um, do you want to take a stab at that, BJ? What does your company, how does your company values or culture influence the benefits for employees? Yeah, um, and, and in some ways benefits is something that right you start off with. I mean, we're sitting here talking about values that you like encode and write on the wall or whatever, but um, you don't tend to do that until later, whereas you know you have an employee, you have to make a decision on what are the benefits, right? Um, so in a way, you're sort of forced into those decisions early. Um, we always provided some things that were just like out of the gate. We just always knew we were going to do from the get-go, like fully paid healthcare, medical, dental, not only for the employee, but for all um, uh, dependents and stuff as well. And things like that, they're just, you know, today are kind of table stakes, but even at the beginning of the company, we, we always do that. And I've always done that in every company I've been a part of. And sometimes you get people like, wow, that's that's pretty generous, although today it's becoming more expected, I think. But um, that's pretty generous. And you're like, yeah, I don't want you to think about your child's health care bill, right, and things like that. It's just about, like, you basically giving a message of, hey, we care, and we want you to be focused and know that you're, you know, cared about and such. And it's just a super easy way of 
kind of putting your money where your mouth is um, with the basic, basic benefits type of things. And then you've got everything from sort of like, you know, vacation standards and stuff like that, which is one that we've debated internally a lot, like, because, you know, there's sort of been this move towards unlimited vacations. Then if you actually look at the number, people tend to take less vacation and then, you know, it gets kind of messy around all this stuff. Um, and then there are some new laws around sick leave and things like that that have to be documented to kind of change the way we did it. So we try to be pretty flexible, but then you're, you always have to drive home the sort of like, hey, it's, it's about you meeting your goals and doing your performance. And as long as that is something you're accomplishing well, then you, know, you can take your time. You can, don't worry about taking that you know, afternoon off to go see the doctor and things like that. Um, so in other words, you gotta make sure you put your money where your mouth is, otherwise people will see through that falsity really fast. And then you just have to make sure that you can align whatever you want, your values and your culture, however you want it to be, with all those other pos uh, policies so that people don't look at it and say, what the heck are you doing? And um, for each of you, what's a specific tool that you use that helped you with um, adoption of your culture in the company? It's one of the questions from the audience. So, you know, SUV is at a large scale, right? We have global presence, well over 3,000 employees. And one thing that uh, we've had for, I couldn't even say how many years longer than I've been with the bank, which is six years. So uh, we have an internal TV show. I don't know if you guys know that. I don't know if I'm allowed to tell you that. Um, but our head of communications, every Monday, there's a Monday morning meeting, and no matter where you are on the globe, you uh, tune in. And it's a panel every morning, probably 20 minutes or so, sometimes up to 40 minutes. And it's about the goings-on at the company, and it makes everyone feel much more connected. If you're you know, an FX trader, if you are a banker on the front lines, if you are working with venture capitalists, if you are working in our joint venture in China, if you, no matter where you are, you have a good sense of what's happening in other parts of the bank. I think that overall connectivity really, really helps, especially with a global presence. Yeah, I would, I, I don't know if this is going to be helpful for the group or not, but um, one of the things that I believe in doing uh, when I come in to run a team and I'm new is I meet with everybody. I sit down and I spend at least 45 minutes with everything, and that can get very challenging when you're dealing with very large teams, 40, 50, 100, but it doesn't matter the size. I want, and I, and it's, it's a desire to get to know them on a very personal level. What do they want? What are their goals? Um, how can I help them get into their dream job? Uh, as a manager and leader, I want them to be in whatever they want to do, and how can I make that happen? Um, and, and so I think uh, it, it's really super critical as leaders, and as you build a, a team in the organization, the single most important thing you could do is to have that one-to-one -one engagement. Um, it's easier when you're when you're small and you're just you know starting to hire people and you have the CEO interviewing everybody, et cetera. It gets harder as it gets bigger, but I would argue, um, and I think it's really super important that no, more than any tool or any process you can go implement, uh, it's about building that individual and getting to know them and getting to understand and then figuring out how to how to best connect with them. So we use a couple of different tools. Um, that sense of, as you start as a new Asana, understanding this is what we, we stand for, this is what we aspire to, these are our values, that's a super important conversation to have. But also we have this great product called Asana, um, which the platform is very transparent. So we use it, we live by it in, um, within the company. We don't use email in the company. So you can literally follow along in any project, um, 
these are the values of the company. Here's how we iterated on them. Here are the trade-offs. Be a part of the conversation. Weigh in on the conversation. And just being in, involved in that co-creation and understanding why we do X or Y really allows people to adopt um, and understand how the culture is lived. And, and you can actually see it infused in the other things that we do in terms of processes. Um, I'm curious if you can share, and uh, I'll start with you, BJ, uh, a hard learning or a trade-off that you had to make between business performance and employee experience. What would that be? What would you share with the team? Um, yeah, that's a good question, um, because I think uh, this is a little bit of a cop-out answer, so I'll just couch it that way. I think most of the time they're not—they're usually not, you know, uh, conflicting. They're more aligned, because um, if you're making a good decision that's good for sort of employees in the long run, that's probably really what you should be doing anyway. Um, so I'd say there are um, there are a couple times when, uh, for example, in our business, um, our business is funding other companies, right? And so um, I have to go in and either, you know, in the early days of funding the companies, I did a lot of this stuff myself, and then as we grew and grew and grew over time, we're now about 65 employees. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of distributed decision making about making these funding decisions and such, right? And so um, you've got whole teams of people set up to go and approval that stuff, all kind of stuff. So uh, every once in a while, though, um, you know, I have to make a decision about, okay, are we going to go do this deal? Or are we not going to go do this deal? And you'll have people that are for or against it. And in general, we really shoot for being heavily analytic and trying to work towards consensus on something and really living by the data and the numbers. But there are times when you know people can look at the same data and the same numbers and come up to different decisions, and I just have to overrule someone, right? Um, that's something we don't tend to like to do because it creates conflict in a way that is hard at a funding organization, but sort of built on conflict um, in a strange way. Um, but um, but it has to happen sometimes, and so it, it'll be a short-term impact on something um, that that you know long-term you don't really want to do. That's probably the biggest conflict we have. But in general. The most important thing is we really drive towards that being very minimized. Yeah. And I like the, the talk about sort of short-term impact versus long-term impact. And I'm curious for, for all of you if you have something specific that was a learning, whether it's through creating your values and culture or in that trade-off that you, you can share with the team. Yeah, I mean, I'll start just by saying, uh, and I've said this before a little bit earlier, it's about being accountable and making the hard decision and showing the team that you're going to stand by. There, are, I've been in a few organizations where there were people who really were not exhibiting the core values and the company and, and the leadership team were unwilling because they were getting the job done, uh, willing to make a change and willing to do what they needed to do. And that just, it completely undermines your culture and it completely undermines the brand and so it basically got to a point where it's like, yeah, I don't believe our values are actually what we say they are because there's clearly it's not being you know it's not being demonstrated, and and so it's it, it's hard. It's not going to be an easy thing to do to let go of a really good person who's making their their performance. Uh, because of a lack of ability to do it in the right way. Um, but what I have seen consistently time and time again is that short-term decision causes much bigger long-term problems. And, and I think the evidence and the data out there in the industry supports that. If you do not do it right, it will come back to bite you even more so. Yeah, I mean, just building on that, I know we're out of time, but when you make a decision and it's controversial, but you can say exactly why as a leader, that 
creates so much more buy-in from your employees on a go-forward than almost anything else can. It's really through moments of, of adversity that trust is built. And that's something, I mean, at SVB, right, we've gone through cycles for 35 years, and in the downturns, right, we're still patient lenders. That's why we do what we do well. The same thing is true on an interpersonal level, right? Why do we trust and care about the people that we've known a long time? It's because we've seen them at their worst, but we know why they're making the decisions, right, and builds trust. Yeah. Um, Sonia, do you want to quickly just talk about the happy versus performing? So plus one, so plus three um, on this, um, I guess one of the things that I would say really is that when it comes to building a culture, I actually, I don't, like you do, BJ, I don't see it as a trade-off in terms of building a culture contributes essentially to you succeeding as a business. Building a culture does not mean that your, your employees are happy just for the sake of being happy. They are happy, they are empowered, they do their best work, everyone succeeds. Um, and if there's a trade-off at all, it's that it's not just happy for the sake of happy, it's happy in service of this ultimate mission. Cool. Well, thank you all for your time. I hope you've gotten some tips that you can apply in your own companies and keep the conversation going about culture and uh, employee experience. Thank you all. Thanks for listening all the way through of this fascinating panel. I hope you've picked up valuable ideas and lessons about how to make your company better, kinder, and this way more fit for scale. Thanks for listening. See you next time.